Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Morning Coffee. I am your host, Brooke Carlock, and I have another amazing guest to chat with today. I am so excited. I actually met Holly through a mutual friend of mine that works for the V Foundation that deals with cancer. So that's how I was introduced to her and have just learned so many amazing things since then. And I'm excited for her to share her story with you and the things that she is doing to help people with grief. So without further ado, I am going to welcome Holly Gainsborough to the podcast. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, my new friend. It's great to be here with you and with your audience. Thank you. So I just want to say first, if anyone has any questions or comments or anything, please feel free to throw them into the chat and we will respond to them as best as we can while we are talking here. But Holly, I just wanted to start off because your story is is very inspirational. So can we just kind of start with you introducing yourself and, and telling everyone watching your own grief story that mm-hmm. led to you working in this space? Sure. And thank you. Thank you for the invite to do that. So we're all grievers in some way. And I'd had grief experiences, you know, as a child and grandparents dying. I had my uncle die in 1989. I was in my late 20s. And then the ultimate grief for me um, was actually February 12, 2009, 15 years tomorrow. My late husband, Stephen Gainsborough, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He was diagnosed with glioblastoma, GBM, which we hear a lot about um, with famous people getting it. We don't always hear about the regular person getting it. I didn't know that I was grieving, Brooke, at that point. I didn't know a lot about grief. I knew about sadness and about heaviness, but I didn't really think about grief in that way. But everything we knew about our world on that day, 15 years ago tomorrow, changed. And I've learned so much since then. You know, our kids were young. Our kids were in sixth and 10th grade at the time. How do I tell our children that he has this illness? And from that moment, though, I will say that I remember the next morning, Stephen woke up and he said, oh, God, why me? And I don't know what, what propelled me to say this to him. But I said, babe, why not you? You know, what's different than you than the child in the hospital or somebody else? And he said, you're right. You're right. And and I came from a place of love. Some people say, that sounds really harsh. But it really is coming from this place of love and just trying to find and make some peace with, okay, this is our journey now. Now, I'm not saying it was like, okay, you know, I mean, okay. And we just move forward. It was a process of really trying to adapt to this news and what our world and our life was going to look like. But from that moment on, um, and I love to share about Stephen, and I do this in my grief work a lot, Brooke. I, when I meet with new clients, I always want them to introduce me to their person. So from that moment, yeah, he's he's awesome. Um, He just never, he's just never complained after that moment. I thought he was even complaining with the asking. We know that anybody that has been diagnosed with a terminal illness goes to that why, you know, why, why did this happen to me? How did this happen to me? And the how is a great question. The why is just beyond anyone's scope. Um, I believe in a higher power and it's not up to me. I can't ask that question. So from that moment, we made a decision to live our lives in a place of gratitude and to do everything we could. And I did everything I could in my heart. I left no stone unturned with him. And so he lived for 22 months. 
And it was really a beautiful time in our marriage, in our life. He, again, because he didn't complain and he came from that place of love and blessings and gratitude, he showed our children how to live with adversity. You know, and I can remember him saying to me after when he was diagnosed, when he was, we were concerned about the kids. And he said, you know, Holly, our kids are going to be stronger, more compassionate, sensitive human beings from this experience for them. And I was like, whoa, like, who are you? What have you done with my husband? (laughs) You find out who people really are deep in their soul. So yeah. those 22 months were definitely a roller coaster ride. So I don't want to paint this picture, but oh, we lived in this like flowery, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And we were in this place of gratitude. We were in a place of gratitude. And there was a lot of fear. And there was a lot of sadness. And I was going to say, it's difficult because when you said that at first, it was like, normally you hear that those are the worst months. You know, it's like, you know, they, were, they were hard months. Yeah. They were hard months. Not every moment. As everybody knows, not every moment and no feeling is final. So not every moment was hard. There were some glorious moments. There were a lot of, there's a lot of joy in our connection with each other and with our children. Learned a lot about people during that time. So the hardness and the sadness and the fear, they were there, but also there was this joy and there was this gratitude and this feeling of being so blessed. And the blessings were that he was still here. You know, he would wake up in the morning. I was like, you're here. Yeah, you're still here. And when we knew yeah. he was dying, he'd wake up in the morning. He'd be like, you're still here. Like, I'm going to enjoy right now. I heard this great thing. I was just joined a webinar the other day that David Kessler did on finding meaning. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talks about is people who are diagnosed with an illness. And I didn't think about this at, at the time it was for me 15, you know, 14 years ago, that don't go to the funeral early. Ooh. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's so brilliant. And that's what we were doing. I wasn't going to his funeral. He was still here. Yeah. So those 22 months, again, joyous, beautiful, hard, painful, and near the end, agonizingly torturous and beautiful and sacred. Yeah. Can I ask what, what, when he, when you guys received the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. was it pretty much, I mean, did they say it was like a life sentence or, you know, did they give you hope that? Great know, question. That's a, so this is a great question. So I will tell you first, um, and people may be saying, well, what, you know, what would people worry? What was the symptoms? Like, it's everybody worse. It's going to happen to them. Yeah, because they're afraid. Yeah. You know, and for a rare disease, it doesn't feel so rare because I'm constantly mm-hmm. in touch with people who have a brain tumor or a loved one. Um, when he got the diagnosis, when we first went to the neurosurgeon, after his MRI, we were told by his primary care physician that it was either a cyst or an abscess. So we're going and thinking, all right, so he'll have to have brain surgery. But yeah, no big deal. Right. And so when this neurosurgeon said, oh, no, he has an glioblastoma. Now, I don't know what he was saying. Blah, 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 whatever, brain tumor. And I remember saying, no, he doesn't. No, 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 no. Talk about denial. No, he doesn't. Um, so that was a shock to us. Because we weren't expecting that diagnosis. And I can't remember your question now because I'm going sort of back in time, uh, you know. What um, kind of hope did they, I mean, okay. did they? They didn't. Terrible? I mean, they didn't it... not give hope. And this is here. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he said, he came out and said 12 to 15 months. Oh, okay. 12 to 15 months. I believe Stephen probably asked him how long. And he said, but everybody's different. And I, you know, he said that he had patients who were living a longer time and, 
So we felt like, okay, this is it. This is not good. This is not good. I did end up taking him to Duke. And Duke has a very different style. Some people love their style. Some people don't. I, it was great for us. And at Duke, there was, one of their big things in their brain tumor center is a big sense that at Duke, there was hope. So they gave us hope. You know, he had his surgery there. He had an awake craniotomy. And they gave us hope. They said, this is what we can do, standard treatment of care. And we're going to enroll him in a clinical trial when he's done with that. And we're going to try to cure him. That's what we needed. That was important yeah. for us. And I can remember saying to Stephen, you scared me and you're going to be cured. <laughs> and I was like, how dare you scare me because you're going to be okay. And at the same time, I know there are people who also are given that hope. And then they're upset that they were given that hope because yeah. they feel it's false hope. I don't believe in false hope. I believe that hope is hope and what, what's worse that's going to happen. We have the hope and then it doesn't play out as we hoped. So what? We got that time. And I think when you give people hope, in my personal opinion, it helps to give them the strength to move forward. If you say to somebody, this is a death sentence, what kind of life is that? Yeah. You know? That's why I'd ask because I wasn't sure if it was, you know, if they said it was a death sentence, would that have made it? I was curious if that was what sparked your feelings of, okay, let's just make this the best time with what we have, you know, because you knew it wasn't going to be that long more than like, okay, let's fight, 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 <laughs> you know? So, and we were fight, fight, fight. I also okay. am one of those people who kind of is a little bit of an idealist. And I love that about myself. I'm not going to change that about myself, even with everything I've been through. And so I made a choice. We made a choice to believe that he would be a long-term survivor. Mm-hmm. And there are long-term survivors out there. There are 20-year survivors out there, seven-year survivors, 15-year survivors. So I figured, why not him? Why not him? So mm-hmm. I, I liked living in that bubble. I needed that for myself. Some people don't, but I needed that for myself. And, and it do, they, they want you to be in this place. And I think the more you have that hope and the more you have that positive attitude, you know, another thing they have in there is a, a positive attitude is a powerful force. Mm, absolutely. And, and my nephew actually painted a plaque like that for Stephen during his treatments. So that positive attitude can catapult us to a place of being in that joyful space and just staying in the moment. You know, I didn't, I tried not to look forward to the what ifs. Because that wasn't going to help me right then and there. And it certainly wasn't going to help me raise my children, raise our children during this really, really difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So take us kind of to to the end or the after, you know, afterwards, after Stephen passed. What was that like? How how were the kids? How are you? So it's so interesting. when he was, you know, just go back a little, when he was dying and he died at home, he, you know, the kids wanted him at home. I was very open with the children once we knew he was dying. Mm-hmm. We knew that there was nothing more and we won't get into that conversation because it was painful with them. Yeah. But I took the kids out for dinner. Steve and I took the kids out for dinner and said, okay, we want to be in like a neutral territory then have a conversation in our home. And I said, okay, ask me anything you want to ask. What do you want to know? And they had all these different questions. 
And we were very honest and transparent. You know, they weren't about the funeral. My daughter's like, what, what would I wear? Like, I said, those are all great questions, right? Because you, know, you can't help but sort of imagine it and try to visualize right. this unknown when you're 13 and 17. Yeah. So we were as prepared as we could be. And then his final week, he was home and we were around him. And that's hard. It was a hard thing. And then the morning, I woke up on that Saturday morning, December 11th, 2010, right? Some dates, Brooke, you know, we will yeah. never, ever forget. <laughs> We will never forget. Absolutely. They stay with us, you know, for us, diagnosis date, recurrence date, surgeries, everything. Um, and so I woke up, it was early Saturday morning and, and he was gone and we knew we had gone to sleep because I said, he's not going to go till we're sleeping because he had made it very clear. He didn't want everybody around him as he was taking his last breath. So I woke up and he was gone and I woke the kids up. We all slept in the family room with him. And my very best friend, Jody was upstairs in my bedroom because she didn't want mm -hmm. us to be alone when it happened. So the kids woke up and I, and I said, he's gone. And our daughter, Liana, who was 13, said, is it bad that I feel kind of relieved? Hmm. And now I had not done any grief work yet. I had not studied this. I only knew innately. And I said, yeah. it's not. It's really normal that you feel this way. I mean, you're, gonna, you're sad and you miss him. And there is this, this the relief of waiting. It was really hard. It was really hard yeah. watching him, you know, in those final moments. So the first thing was that sense of, okay, all right, this part is done. And then this moving forward and taking action, right? Because then the action is you got to make all the phone calls hospice has to come. I mean, thank goodness for my best friend, Jody. I will tell you. You know, she made all the phone calls, took care of all that stuff. You know, call, I called the funeral home, did all that. Um, you know, it's funny, no matter how prepared you are for somebody, um, and I know you've had family members who have had illnesses. Yeah, my mom. This is all reminding me of my yeah, mom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know if I'm activating you, I'm here to hold space for your activations no, no. <laughs> in your heart as well. You know, no matter how prepared you are, you're never prepared. I mean, I have clients say, you know, I just want to get myself ready for my yeah. loved one who's dying. I said, well, I'm here. But just know that what you think it's going to feel like is not going to feel like that. Mm -hmm. It's just different. So no matter how prepared, I wasn't. I couldn't possibly be prepared no. for him to be gone, like really gone. So it was really hard. And I can remember, <laughs> I still, I had a cell phone. I can remember just calling his cell phone over and over again just to hear him say, hey, this is Steve Gainsborough, but, you know, just to hear his voice again, huh. you know, yeah. and doing that. But it brought comfort. I needed that. I needed to feel that. Um, and it was really hard doing all the steps, planning the funeral, you know, just the obituary, letting everybody know. Now we're Jewish, so it makes it much easier because in Judaism, you bury your loved one pretty quickly. Okay. So he died on Saturday morning. The funeral was Monday. Oh, wow. So we didn't yeah. have to stretch it out. Some people wait, you know, and they either they do cremation, they have a celebration of life like six months later, yeah. or, you know, there's a wake and there's all these things that you know, it was like, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, that's super quick. Wow. So it was super quick, which was really great. I think that's one thing that our religion does right, you know, in my <laughs> opinion. But I don't know any other way, so what do I know? Um, so for me then, when he died, I was a very social person before. Mm -hmm. Loved being around people. I'm a real extrovert. And I didn't want anybody around me. And so with his funeral, oh, my God, there were over 600 people there. 
maybe more. I can never remember. There were so many people. And everybody wanted to come up to me. And I went off into a private chapel and I said, I don't want to see anybody. I remember getting out of the limousine and all these people waiting outside in front of the synagogue. And I literally, I didn't even wait for the limo driver. I opened my door. I opened the door and I forgot about this. You know, it's coming back. And I literally got out of the door and I walked as fast as I could to a private room. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to yeah. see anybody. This was not a social occasion for me. And I didn't want that. My kids greeted people. My kids were amazing. <laughs> 13 and 17. My daughter, them, they were just greeting everybody. And I just stayed by myself. I stayed in there. I think my best friend stayed with me. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And then with the funeral, which was painful, I don't need to go into any details, but all of it was really, really hard. And all I can remember feeling was, and I know you can identify with this, is I just, I want him back. Yeah. I want him back. Like, okay, you know, okay, you can come back now. And so that was really painful. I mean, it was just a painful, I had never experienced pain like that, like that heartache, that yearning and that longing. And having to be in constant motion because I had to get prepared. People were coming over, you know, we do something in Judaism called sitting shiva and people come over, you know. And I had over 100 people in my home three nights in a row, and I couldn't wait for them to leave. And I would stay, I would retreat to my bedroom. And then the clergy would bring me down because we'd have to do a service every night in the home. And I would, and they would like part like the Red Sea, and I'd go and I'd sit, and then I'd go right back upstairs. Because I didn't want, it was too much for me. It was too much for yeah. me. Some people love that. Now, I'm remarried. I am blessed to be remarried. My husband, Joe, is widowed as well. And when his wife, Rona, died, and she died about a year and a half after Stephen, a little bit sooner than that. Um, and we were friends. He and I were friends. So I was there for him. Okay. And he loved having all the people around. He, for him, that worked for him. And everybody's different. And so I say to people, yeah. you do your way. So moving forward from that, I just can remember just not wanting to do anything. I was just really proud of myself when I would change my like yoga pants and <laughs> get in the shower in the morning, take my kid to school, you know. <laughs> And, and then, you know, and having children, I needed to be present for them. They deserve that. And yeah. because nobody taught me about grief and nobody said you get to feel your feelings. I mean, I have friends who did. You know, I talk about my friend Jody a lot. Um, but nobody said whatever you're feeling is normal. Mm-hmm. Nobody said cry as you need to cry. Grieve as long as you need to grieve. Nobody told me that. Yeah. I feel like no one really knows what. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And even God bless my parents, you know, and my father, may rest in peace. They didn't know. They were grieving too. They were grieving for their son-in-law. And they were grieving for their daughter who's in pain. They grieved for the grandchildren. And they didn't know. And so they never taught me what this looks like. And so I didn't feel like I was receiving from society and, and my circle, that permission to be where you are. You know, I had a couple of friends. I had one friend, and she knows I talk about this. She's still a very good friend. I remember her emailing me and saying, I don't know how you feel. And we've none of us have been through this before. Nobody had had a friend, had a spouse die. So I don't know what to do, but right. I love you. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's all I needed. 
<laughs> that's what I needed. Everybody else is like, tell me if you need anything. You know, what can I do? Do you need that? You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't know what I need. I need my husband back. Yeah. Like, that's what I need. And, you know, you know, you won't let me back. Like, you can't do or say anything. Yeah. So, Holly, how old was Stephen when he, he died? He was um, 56. He died a month before his 57th birthday. Yeah, so young. Okay. He was young. And I was 51 when he died. And he died just shy of our 20th wedding anniversary. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I was 31 when I married him. He was 37 when we got married. Um, you know, and I just, yeah, he was 37 when we got married. You know, I waited a long time. I was not a child bride, you know, to find the one. Yeah. So there was a lot of that mixed in with that. So there were times in my grief, as painful as it was, that I made the mistake of faking it till I make it. Oh, yes, I'm guilty of that right? as well. Right. And we are. <laughs> and it's because nobody tells us you don't have to. I remember going to a support group for widows. And it was younger widows, and I wasn't sure if I actually belonged because I was 51. And a lot of these widows were in their like late 20s or in their 30s. And they said, no, you do belong. But I can remember being in this, and I was so new to this, and there was a woman that was there, a young woman whose husband had died. He just died, I mean, unexpectedly. And she said, well, you know, you just got to fake it till you make it. And I thought, oh, okay. And I thought that facilitator probably wasn't, could have done a little bit of a better job on yeah, redirecting that conversation and reframing that because I thought, oh, I've got to fake it till I make it. Hmm. And then someone who I worked for, um, I worked at my synagogue back in those days, said, when you come back to work, you know, the congregants and the families are going to expect you to be okay. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I was like, oh, okay. What? I was in this like widow fog. So I was like, oh, yeah. okay. okay, I can do that. So it became this, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> right? Now, I've since learned, like, fine, a great acronym for fine listeners in Brooke, feelings yeah. inside, not expressed. Oh, I love that. Such a good one. Right? Yeah. So I'm fine. Because it usually does not mean you're fine. Yeah. So I, people say, oh, you're so strong and you're handling this with so much grace. And I was because... I didn't know how else to do it. You know, I was raised to always rise above things. So I was rising above it. Where inside, I was shattered. So I would have those nights in that fetal position, mm -hmm. right on the floor with that guttural cry, or in the shower, or I'd go in the closet so my kids wouldn't hear me yeah. and just be in that pain. Um, and I did, ha I was going to therapy, you know, Steve and I went to therapy together with, when he was diagnosed and then I continued on after. And she was a great therapist. I have learned a lot over the past, you know, years since he's been gone, he's been gone 13 years and I've been doing grief work for 10 as a professional. And I have learned that, and I thought of Joe McRogers, who was on your show, you know, um, <laughs> recently in January and talked about how as a therapist, she would say, oh, yeah, I do grief on her website all those years ago. And she realizes now with all the stuff she's learned about grief that she didn't know because there's no um, required course of study right. for therapists to take. So my therapist was great, but she wasn't a grief specialist. Like she didn't specialize in grief. Yeah. And when I started doing, <laughs> yeah, I started to the choir, and I, oh, I, so I started realizing. Yeah, I went to one that after Libby died, that 
told me that I could turn it into a positive. <laughs> I'm like, this is like right after Libby died. And she was just this, it, I almost feel sorry for her because she was just this young girl, you know, very well dressed, very, and just was like, you can look at it as a chance to reinvent yourself. <laughs> My daughter went to a therapist. I just died. Like, I yeah. don't want to reinvent yeah. myself. Like, I can barely. You're already reinvented. You've already, you've been forced to be reinvented. Exactly. Exactly. I remember um, my daughter going to a therapist when she was in college um, and said to her, you know, everything happens for a reason. Oh, that's the and, she, and she called me in. I said, this is not your therapist. She said, oh, I know. This is totally not my therapist. You know, yeah. God works in mysterious ways. Like, okay, mm-hmm. God did not take her father from her. God didn't take Libby yeah. from me. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't oh. pick and choose. Like, okay, well, we're going to take Stephen Gaines. We're going to take Libby Miller. We're gonna, this is what we're going to do. It doesn't yeah. work yeah. that way. We can um, do an separate show on the shit that people say. Oh, my God. We should do that. Let's do that. I know. That's what I want to write a book about. Yes, yes. shit people say. <laughs> Well-intentioned, but so misinformed. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So Uh, my therapist was great. I mean, it was really good because I could talk. But as I realized, I wasn't getting given, being given tools. You know, I was being acknowledged for my pain, which is really important. I, I feel like my pain was certainly witnessed. But there was something missing in all of that. And I look back at the time and I think, gosh. If I just let myself be in the pain, mm-hmm. like really, and I used to say, "Oh, I'm embracing my grief." Oh, I'm, I'm embracing my grief. Look at me. <laughs> okay, Holly. Okay, we'll go with that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Until you can't anymore, right? right? Until you can't uh, anymore. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. So, how long after? Because I know. I guess I want to kind of get into how you evolved into doing the grief work because I know you can't I know from our mutual friend that you were involved in like like the brain brain tumor societies and things like that so kind of where did it start for you getting involved oh yeah so I was very I'm still very involved with the National Brain Tumor Society in fact I lead their grief support group um monthly and I do chair events and all that I found that I was pulled after Stephen died to really be present for other people. And I, and I believe now, as I've looked back over the years, I wanted to give others what I wasn't receiving. Mm, yeah. So I found myself just wanting to be there for other people whose loved ones were dying, especially people who were having spouses die. Like that was what I could identify with, yeah. whether the brain tumor community or beyond. And I kept feeling like I want to do something with this. I want to do something with this. And I thought about going back to college to get my master's in social work. I did not, and I'm glad I did not. So when I went and submitted all my transcripts, they weren't accepting a lot of my courses. So what that meant was I was going to have to go back and do like several more undergrad work and then do the two years for an MSW. Well, I was now, when I started to decide to do that, I was like 52-ish at the time, maybe a year later, 52, 53. I thought, I'll be in school until now, basically, because I wouldn't be able to do it full time. Yeah. And I had a kid in high school, you know, because yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Leon was still in high school. And I was like, okay, never mind. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And my husband, Joe, my husband now, Joe, when his wife, Rona, died, his late wife, Rona, died, we would take long walks um, and we would talk a lot. And I was really there for him. 
And at some point he said to me, and I know it was after we got engaged, I remember him saying to me, you need to do something with this. You really know how to be there for people. and You need to do something. And it was really a gift that he gave me. And I said, you know what? I've been wanting to, and I didn't know how. So I just started researching certification programs because I knew I wasn't going back to school, like as a full-time student. And so I discovered the grief recovery method. I said, okay, this looks like a good model for me right now. This was 10 years ago. And so I did that training and it was a great training for me then. It was a great stepping stone for me because it's very structured. It's very scripted. And my confidence was not where it is now where I thought, okay, well, this is great. I'll just follow a lesson plan and guide people through this lesson plan. So that was great for a time. And then as time went on, I thought, no, I want to do more because it's not one size fits all. Grief isn't one size fits all. And there's not one model of support. Right. Because some people it was great with and some people it didn't work for well. So then I started doing more work. And I like you, I studied with David Kessler. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied with the University of Wisconsin. They have a grief support specialist certification. I attend webinars weekly. I and mean, I'm constantly signing up for a webinar, whether some of them are free, which is great, and some I pay for. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an investment in my being present and holding space for people who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Yeah. So it's been 10 years since I started doing this work and sort of getting, sort of getting paid for it sometimes. sometimes not. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious how, because my, my losses would be, you know, all of my losses are relatively recent. I lost my sister a long time ago, but um, how have, have things changed? I guess, have you noticed any changes in, in the grief world or grief work from the time that Stephen died until, you know, today? You know, I noticed changes for me. It's very possible that 13 years ago, I mean, David Kessler's been around forever. (laughs) So there was probably all of that. I just didn't know about it. So it's my own personal evolution that I've noticed since Stephen died. That's a great way to look at it. Because you don't really know that anything is there. Yeah, I didn't know there was, I didn't, you know, I didn't know there was like a book on grief and grieving. I just book right. on death and dying, you know, which I didn't really need to read that because he was dead. Yeah. Um, what I did do, which was interesting, what I, I found myself doing after he died was another way of avoiding the deep pain, you know, in, in grief recovery, they call it you know, and, um, energy relieving behaviors, <laughs> Okay. which is really just for everybody, you know, no matter what you're doing. And there are those. And one of my energy relieving behaviors was what I call spiritual bypassing. So what I started doing was I would go to angel card readers or tarot card readers or intuitives, mediums, because I was trying to find answers. Yeah. Not for why he was gone, but just, I was just trying to find something deeper because I was looking for the bright siding of it. Okay. You know, okay, well, if I know he's there and I can understand his experience with his dying, then that will make me feel better. If I read this book, this will make me feel better. And I started reading all these spiritual, Marilyn Williamson books and <clears throat> Brian Weiss books. Have you read any of Brian Weiss books? No, I, but I'm not <laughs> okay. bent that way. Like the, the, yeah, the mediums and the signs and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I was like <laughs> desperate. And I, I spent a fortune in those first couple of years. I would say the first two years, maybe three. Um, yeah, and Brian Weiss books, they're all about, you know, reincarnation, basically, past lives. Okay. And it's like, okay, so Stephen and I have past life. And I, you know, and I believe in that. 
my personally. Um, now, because of how I've evolved and how I've learned, and I've learned from some of the best, and then I tap into my own intuition, it's so different that when Stephen died. It's so different from like 10 years ago, yeah. you know, three years after Stephen died. I'm in such a different place. And I like to say, well, because people say, oh, well, that's because time, you know, you know, you know, but time heals and time you'll feel better. And it's like, yeah, okay, you know what time does? So I'm looking at my watch, people. Yeah. You know, time did that. Okay. All right. So now it's like, what, you know, 1133, you know, and in a minute it'll be 1134. That's what time does. Um, but I just needed to find a different way because it wasn't the time that was passing that was making me feel mm-hmm. more grounded. It was what I was doing with my time. And what yeah. I was doing with my time was really learning. And as I was learning, I was also healing, you know, taking that action, being active, proactive to be present for other people was also giving me the, the um, opportunity to be present for myself. I love that. They have that theory, like the growing around your grief. Yeah, like I talk about that. Mm-hmm. So like you, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I talk about that all the time. And I always say, you know, we, yeah. that, that we're getting bigger around that fall. And that is absolutely true. And yeah. sometimes we have these activations and we have our grief bursts, like yeah, anniversaries, or, you know, and sometimes, you know what, we constrict a bit and we get a little, you know, we, that ball feels bigger, but it's really, we're just feeling a little bit mm-hmm. smaller around it. And that's okay. And we can let ourselves be there. Yeah. And not fight it. I used to fight it. What's wrong with me? I shouldn't be this way. I don't want to feel this way. Now it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is, this is recurrence date or this is. This is an anniversary, or this is, you know, my father died in 2021 at 92, but he died from COVID. So there is a whole mm-hmm. other layer to that, which then activated my grief about Stephen. Yeah. 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 I love that theory. I think it's so true. And by the way, this is a side, totally random side note, but I commend both of us for being here and doing this when it's the, the anniversary of both of the deaths of our, our people. So mm-hmm. <laughs> mine was on Friday, yours is tomorrow. Well, Stevens was December, but tomorrow is oh, okay. the a, a diagnosis day. So tomorrow's okay. diagnosis right. day. Yeah. Wow. But yes, high five to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either way, you know what, even if it wasn't a monumental date coming up. Yeah. This is our finding meaning. This is our yeah. way to find meaning in our losses. It is. Losses, That's very true. In our very losses true. and how we can do something for the greater good because yeah. it also feeds our souls. So can I ask, what do you think? It really struck me when you said, you know, that you had said to Stephen, why, why not me? And it kind of rung a bell with me because I said a similar thing after Libby died and people look at you like you're crazy or like it's a horrible thing to say and you know because it what for a while it was just like why me why me and and you know you know my story I've had so many people die in such a short period of time that I loved and it's it's almost impossible not to ask like why are all of these bad mm-hmm. things happening but then I feel like when you for me, it was it was learning about grief because I dove right away into reading books and articles and watching videos and all that kind of stuff um, 
because that's just my nature. If I don't know something, I, I dive headfirst into mm-hmm. it and study it because I'm a nerd. But um, but then you start noticing how many people there are. Like for me, you have no idea how many people have lost children until you lose a child. And then it's like, holy cow, like you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like Libby died in a car accident. And now I never noticed it before, but every single day I get notifications from the news channel in my area about all of these accidents. It's like, Mm -hmm. I never knew they were there before, but it seems like you came to that conclusion so quickly without really like the study. So do you know, I mean, I don't know if you know what it was that that made you feel that way, but I don't know. I was impressed, I guess, that you came up with that. You know, I remember hearing somebody say that about something else, maybe years before. I think we're all special. Every human on this planet, every being is special. And we're not more special than anyone else. Yeah. You know, I'm not more special than anybody else. What I do, what you and I do, the work we do may be special. And we are special in our own way but I'm not more special than anyone else. And no one is more special than me. And Stephen, his illness, it didn't just happen to him. It's happened to so many people before him. And, and, and I always think about children. That's why I said the first thing I thought when he said that was, what about the child in the hospital? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know where that came from. All I knew was that the why me wasn't going to be the place of healing. Yeah. I mean, he had every right to ask it. Like, what, what, can I curse on here? Can I use the F word? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Oh, yeah. Like, all you know, like what, like, what the fuck? Like, why me? What the <laughs> fuck? But <clears throat> don't know why. You yeah. don't know why. People ask me all the time, how do you not ask why? How do you, don't you wonder how we got the brain tumor? I said, yeah, of course I do. I wonder how. Yeah. I can't wonder why. And I, and I don't know where that came from. What I knew was that I had to be really there for him and for mm-hmm. us. He was the one living with this in that moment. And he was so phenomenal. He was like, oh, this is much harder for you than it is for me. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. He was so amazing. Yeah, he sounds incredible. He was, he was really. Yeah. Goodness. So are there, now that you are, I don't want to say so far out, but a lot further. No, I, but it is. I mean, it, some days it feels like I'm not, but it is. I mean, compared yeah. to so many people that I work with and I see in groups and talk to, I am far out. It's just a little over 13 years. It's a long time. Yeah. So in, in those 13 years of wise experience now that you have, um, are there any kind of key like lessons or insights that you share with your clients or that you could share with my audience about mm-hmm. dealing with grief, where, where do they start? <laughs> Is yeah, there anything you know that you, you know, tell people? So the first thing I'm going to say, if I may, when you said dealing with grief, I'm going to tell Absolutely. them, you deal with it. You feel with it. Mm. You feel your grief. It is not something to get over. Yeah. It's not something to tuck away. It's not something to pretend. The first thing I always say is just feel your feelings. Let yourself be there and sit there. Honor yourself and honor your loved one. 
Nobody knows what your loved one wants for you more than you. Right? People are going to say things. You know, they say that all that misinformation, the platitudes. Oh, you know, your your loved one. You know, oh Holly Stephen wouldn't want you to be sad. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? Now that wouldn't be wrong because Stephen would tell me. I mean, we had great deep conversations yeah. before he died, so I knew what he wanted for me. I knew he didn't want me to grieve forever, which was he didn't realize that that's bullshit. But <laughs> mm-hmm. I knew that he wanted me to find love again. I knew he wanted me to get married again. And I knew he wanted me to live, like really live fully and make sure the kids go to college. <laughs> like those were like, those were the big things for him. And so when I get into those dark moments and I have them, you know, 13 years later, I am human and I have human feelings, having this human experience. Um, and I let myself, and I welcome it and I say, okay, hello, old friend, come on in. And I sit with it. And then I hear him saying, okay live live so i say to clients and i say in my workshops and i say to my support groups and i say to all of your listeners and viewers you live by feeling we don't live by suppressing and stuffing our feelings feel where you are embrace it and you know what talk about your loved ones even if people are uncomfortable, help them to understand that grief is the normal response to a loss. We, unfortunately, as grievers, and everyone's a griever, so anybody you talk to, you just say, oh, I, I, I've never had really a major loss. You know what? You don't have to have somebody die to experience loss and grief. But we have the responsibility to normalize grief in this society. Yeah. We are so illiterate. So let yourself be where you are. Trust your own instincts and intuition about your grief. So if somebody says, oh, don't feel bad, or you've got to be strong, or all those other things that people say, and it doesn't sit well, trust yourself. If it doesn't sit well, it's not right for you. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Can I ask, and, and I don't know if you are comfortable or... Ask me anything. How did your kids deal with Stephen's death? I'm just asking because I had, you know, two teenage boys myself when Libby died. Yeah, it's a good question. How um, did the kids handle it? Very differently. My very different. It was very interesting. So my oldest is a boy and my youngest is a girl. Mm-hmm. Derek was 17 at the time. Um, he was shy of his 18th birthday. And Liana was 13 and a half. And Liana actually eulogized him. Derek said, I'm not speaking at the funeral. And I said, that's fine. You know, so I had my father speak. My brother-in-law spoke. Liana spoke and she spoke first. And then I, and I spoke last and then the clergy. Um, Liana really held it close to the vest. She was 13. It is not unusual for 13-year-olds to just yeah. not want to be there and want to get back into their normal life, whatever that means. She was ready to go back to school. Yeah. She wanted to be with her friends. She didn't want to be home dwelling on it. She didn't want to talk about it. She chose a different way for herself in that moment. She didn't want to see me grieving. She didn't want to see me cry. Mm. That's where she was, and she was 13, and that's really normal for a 13-year-old. Yeah. You know, we say that kids are kind of puddle jumpers, like, you know, and 
their resilience is different, you know, and, and children grieve differently than adults. Yeah. She had to compartmentalize it. Whatever she had to do, she had to do. Derek felt it really deeply. Now, some people say, well, sometimes when it's the same gender parent, I don't really buy that. I think it's just who people are. Yeah. Um, and so Derek really struggled. I mean, Derek, you know, he was a senior in high school. It was December of his senior year of high school. Liana was, you know, in eighth grade. And there were times I had to go and pick him up early. Yeah. Like he would call me having a panic attack. And the school didn't handle it well. Um, and he was in therapy. Liana wouldn't go to therapy. He was in therapy. And it was really hard. It was really, really painful for him for a long time. And he, but he did get, did do the work, you know, and then he has his moments, you know, that it, the yeah. ebbs and the flows of it. And now 13 years later, you know, it's funny because I just recently was talking to Liana about this and, you know, she's been 13 years. Well, for her, she was 13. She's now 26. She'll be turning 27, you know, at the end of April. He's been gone as long as she was alive when he was alive with her. Yeah. So oh. she, when people text her like on his anniversary or something, and she's like, I'm fine. Like she'll tell people, oh, well, my dad died. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, hey, she's like, hey, hey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and she's like, it's okay. She said, you know, it's, I, she was young. So she misses him. She thinks about him. But the weight of it is not as heavy for right. her. Mm -hmm. I think when life events come up for her, sometimes like, oh, you know, I wish dad was here. You know, that kind of stuff. She's also extremely close with my husband, Joe. You know, okay. I've been with him, you know, we'll be married 10 years in July. So she has a father figure. Yeah. Which is really beautiful. And that's yeah. a gift. And that's a gift I feel like Stephen gave us. Um, Derek will still have his, you know, he's doing fine too, 13 years. Um, he's doing fine. And again, not with time because time passes. It's what you do with the time. You know, and they have me. So they know I'm always here to talk about right. it. And I talk about, we talk about him all the time, like all the time. That's great. So Derek's doing really well now, but it was really, it was really hard. It was really hard. And it's really hard. You know, as you know, it's sometimes really hard to parent children while you're grieving yourself. Like, how do you hold space? And I never heard <laughs> that expression, hold space. Um, how do you hold space for them in their pain? And how do I hold space for myself? And I definitely made some missteps. And I've talked to them about it. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't remember that. But I do. I remember some of the missteps I made. I remember Liana coming to me a couple of days after Stephen died and she was texting with a friend and then she said something about well, my parents and then she said, oh, and then she came out, she started crying and she said, I was just texting my friend and I said, I, just really, I only have one parent now <sighs> and I said, you always have dad. Dad will always be your parent. He's just not your parent here on earth. What I wished I had said, and I've had this conversation, so I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> But like as parents, we beat ourselves up, right? And our kids are like, huh? Right. Always, yes. <laughs> what I wished I had said, and just for your audience, you know, I wished I had said, what does that feel like for you? Yeah. I wish I had gone, but I didn't know. It wasn't my field. And I was. Right. Like, oh, oh my gosh. It feels like something else. You're trying to fix it. And just letting her know that he will always be her parent. Like he'll yeah. always be You're always going to be living your mother. I don't care if it's 30 years from now, yeah. which you'd be turning like 40, you know? Yeah. You're always going to be Libby's mom. That doesn't yeah. change. I'll always be Stephen's wife and she'll always be Stephen's daughter. and He'll always be her father. So that's the only one of the things that I think about that I wished I had done a little differently. 
That's a long answer well, to a very short question. That's okay. I mean, if that's it, then you did you did pretty well. <laughs> I know I struggled with the like letting them see me cry, and then I felt guilty, especially with Max, my my oldest. He he tends to be my protector, you know. Mm-hmm. So he, I think, was worried a lot about me and how I was mm-hmm. doing. And yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of a struggle finding that balance of it is Um, how do you show them that it's okay to cry and be sad and be feeling everything but then also not make it to where they are taking care of you you know yeah and you know what I tell people um, especially parents who say you know I just say you know what you are modeling for them Mm -hmm. so if you're going to hide and suppress your grief you are teaching them to do the same you're teaching them that grief should be private. Don't feel bad. Right. Now, like I said, like for my daughter, she made it very clear. I don't want to see you crying. I don't want to hear about it. So I said, okay. Derek was also my protector. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and we were very mindful, Stephen and I, to make it very clear to him that he was not going to be the man of the house when his father was no longer here. There were a lot of young men teenage boys, however old they are, doesn't happen with daughters. But when a father dies, young men are told, you're now the man of the house. And we made it very clear that he was not the man of the house. You are not responsible for anybody. Just be kind. You're not. But he took on this role, like your Max, as protector in a way. And I can remember, like like the next day, the day that Stephen died that night, I can remember my parents coming over. And, you know, I, I had not seen my mother. I don't know if I'd seen my mother yet that day. And so I started just sobbing. And Derek came running down the stairs. <laughs> running, I mean, like, by my side. And yeah. I said, it's okay. I'm okay. It was very sweet and really beautiful and lovely. Um, because he was able to wear his grief and wear his pain mm-hmm. outside. We were able to do that together. So if I I could cry with him, I still do sometimes. You know, just saying, you know, I'm really missing dad right now, and you know, he's really present. He's really present. I can remember one time I um, said, I'm, I have to go to the cemetery. It must have been my anniversary, my wedding anniversary, and I was not in a good mood. And I said, I'm going to the cemetery. And so I went, and the cemetery is about a half an hour from where we live, give or take, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, depending on traffic. And I was in there, and then the next thing I know, Derek's pulling up. Oh, so sweet. That is so sweet. So sweet. So yeah, he also was that swooping in. Um, but I just, like I said, I really, I had to grieve how I, I would do it differently. Again, I didn't know what to do because nobody taught me how to grieve, which is why, right. again, when I do what we do is to give people that permission, you know, because our kids are watching. Yeah. So important. Like we, I, I don't know where that time went. We no, but there's so much more to cover. I, <laughs> I have a whole we list. Are, <laughs> I'm bringing you back on. Um, I just <laughs> want to throw some of the comments up here so I don't miss them. So this is Tony with the Grief Let's Talk About It podcast. Good morning. Oh, we'll have to check the podcast out. I have a podcast too. Good morning. Happy Sunday. And oh, I asked them what they were drinking and we got oh, a coffee, coffee. I got water. Coffee. Yeah. Water. Oh, you're healthy. I've got my protein coffee. 
And uh, Tony says, love this conversation you, from two strong people. Thank you, Tony. Oh, my yeah, goodness. If there are any questions, if anybody wants to throw any questions in for the last couple of seconds. I'm yeah, you can throw you have, any have a couple minutes to any throw anything in there. Um, you can also leave them once I post it. You can leave them down in the comments also. And we can try to, to reply there. But um, Holly, do you want to tell people where they can find you if they're yes. interested in working with you? Thank you. Or listening to your podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so you can reach my website is goldenheartgrief.com. It is still in the process of being updated. Hopefully by the end of this week, it'll be completely done. So if you go on now, it, it, it's being changed. So if you want to wait a few days, you can do that. You can find me on Instagram at Golden Heart Grief Support, Facebook, Golden Heart Grief Support and Education. Way too many names going on. Just, I'll be the same. And I, we do have a podcast. I have a podcast co-host called Creating Space for Grief and Hope. Okay. And you, know, you can also email me at goldenheartgrief at gmail.com. So my niche now for your audience is I work with women who have experienced the death of a spouse or a life partner or women who have experienced the death of a loved one to a brain tumor. It doesn't have to be a, a spouse. It could be anybody who's died from a brain tumor. Um, I used to meet with everybody because I want to help all the grievers. <laughs> I'm very emotive. Look at me. Um, everyone. I, you know, and that was when I thought, oh, I want to help all the grievers. And now I have, I'm blessed enough after all these years that I can really narrow that down to women. I think yeah. women really need support. Men need support too, but women are going to ask for it much more quickly. And women I can really identify and relate to. And so that's really my niche now. And I'm really enjoying that and, and using the tools and, and various different activities and exercises with them. Well, for the men out there, we, we can throw a grief. Let's talk about it up there. Tony Lynch is amazing for, for men's grief support. And we got another comment here that you'll like. Diane says my daughter's name was Holly. Oh, Diane, I would love to hear about her one day. If you want to email me and share some stories about your Holly, I would love to learn about her and be introduced to her. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much, Holly. If you thank would you. love to come back at some point, I know. I would I love like to come back at some point. Different things and, and have more of a conversation, but it was so great of you to join it was, us today. Well, it's an honor. And thank I you. Really and I'll have it. you on. We'll be having you on our podcast as well. So, Brooke's audience, look out for Brooke being on Creating Space for Brief and Out. All right. I will let you know when I am going to be on there. Just so my audience knows, next week, um, there will not be a live show next week because I'm actually recording my audiobook, which is kind of crazy <laughs> to think about. But yeah, that is that's next weekend. So I won't be able to be here to do this because I will be recording the audiobook. But um, I will be back the following week, the last week in February, with uh, David is my guest and my ex-husband, David. And we are going to be chatting about just life uh, two years after losing Libby. So kind of what we're going through and how we're dealing with things and, and what it feels like two years after the loss of our daughter. So we would love it if you would come back and check that out the last week of February. So, All right, Holly, thank you again. Thank you, my friend. Big hugs. And big, big hugs, hugs, audience. Goodbye, everyone. Sending love and hugs as always. And we'll see you next time. We all know that grief can leave us feeling alone, unmotivated, and even hopeless. That's why I'm so proud to have partnered with Help Text to provide a full year of ongoing expert support to my subscribers. 
Help Text has individualized support for caregivers, people dealing with a difficult diagnosis, or grieving the loss of a loved one, pregnancy, or even a pet. You answer questions at sign up to get specific support just for you, including two texts per week and even extra texts on special or difficult days like birthdays or anniversaries. And the best part is if you sign up using the site linked in my description, you'll get a 10% discount off of your subscription. Thank you so much to Help Text for offering this deal to my subscribers. When life gets hard, getting support from Help Text is easy.